I have drank drinks with a higher viscosity than what's coming out of the gym shower soap tap. Welcome back to Privy. Privy is a podcast about bathrooms. Recorded this week, again, from my home bathroom. I'm your host, Hunter Hoover, and I love bathrooms. Thank you so much for being here. To start the show, I want to just share a brief story here, and it's going to introduce us to what we're going to do this week. But I, I took a shower at the gym this week. Normally, uh, my, my gymming routine, I'm able to go to the gym, get full Randy, uh, and then just re- return home to my family and, and kind of stand and exist in filth until I shower the following morning. I know it is what it is. It's the system I'm on, and that's okay. And, But the circumstances on this one is I, I had to use the gym uh, before I went to work this, this day because I knew I was going to have to jet to my other job in the evening. And so I knew I wasn't going to be able to do the gym after work. And so I went to gym before work and I'm sitting here going, I, I can kind of exist in like gym sweat for, you know, like two to three hours of awake time after the gym. Eh, it's more like four. Uh, but I was not thinking that I was going to be able to do a full work day and a half after I go to work at my first job, then going to my second job, I thought that certainly I would be far too randy to exist um, for that long without a shower. So um, I gymmed hard and then I I did what needed to happen. I, I used the gym shower and, you know, using the gym shower is always something special. You know, we talked in shower etiquette some of this stuff, but like, Man, there's some blokes that are just getting some some foul mess in the shower and you know, I'm not I'm not bringing like probably proper foot attire for this shower situation. So like I'm just firmly p- planting my bare hoofies straight into the just pool of of sass that that is at the bottom of the men's room shower. But you know, sometimes that's what you have to do. I'm not transporting flip-flops and sandals around. I just, I don't have that in me at this point. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, but I will say this. I always bring my own soap. I have my own soap and, and shampoo and stuff. Uh, and I grabbed that and I had it ready for use. But like me being cheap, I get all set up in the bathroom and, and, Man, I am a creature of of particular habits. Like when I'm setting up in the gym shower, I it takes me a hot minute because like I take my underpants and my shirt for when I am done to the shower area to hang up and I have it hung up in stages so that way it's in order of order that I will need it when I get out of the shower. And then in the shower, you know, you've got it laid out just so that way everything can go as quickly as possible. Because again, you don't want your hoofies sitting in the cess too long. And they're not very big showers. It's like when you, if you bend over, sometimes your butt like hits the wall and you're like, oh gosh, no. But I got my, my soaps set up on the floor of the shower there. 
and me being cheap, I see that they have the like complimentary soap dispenser. Uh, and I, I decide, you know what? I'm going to save my soap and I'm going to go for the soap they have on tap here at the gym. And so I'm just like, just getting that, getting that soap. And I have drank drinks with a higher viscosity than what's coming out of the gym shower soap tap. Like, good lord. It hit my rag and just disappeared into oblivion. Instantly vaporized straight down the drain the thinnest soap in the universe at the gym. So, I used my own. Uh, and, and this is going to bring us into the, the topic this week and something that's been at the back of my brain for a while to talk about on the show. It's, it's kind of related to the, the rotation of questions that we ask everyone. We ask all our guests. And so maybe we should have done this work of figuring out the backstory of what is in many ways a mainstay of most, most bathrooms. But this week on the pod, we're discussing soap and more importantly, the history of soap. Where'd it come from? It gets you clean. It, you know, it goes where no man should ever go or probably will ever go before. I don't know. But it does a lot of heavy lifting soap. But like, what? how do we get this stuff? And where did it come from? So... I, I perused the interwebs, and the earliest mentions of soap come from about 2800 BC Babylon. Now, that's about 5,000 years ago, which is quite a long time ago. And this is both the earliest record of soap being made, and probably about the time where everyone quit smelling like dog poop. Like, it, you know, I'm trying to imagine, so I have... I work with people, and sometimes people need to shower more than they do. Uh, and that's not a judgment thing. It's just it's just a hygienic, like, posit that I'm putting forth as a person who tries to shower more than he should. And, you know, the earliest mentions of this, like, if, if they were not, if they didn't have soap before here, you're just wetting. And when you're just wetting, you're just, you're just giving bacteria just like a, a, a flippin' dance club to just start making more bacterial buddies, you know. But this this early Babylonian soap, it defo did not look like what we squirt out of the hand dispensers or in my case the shower dispenser. Ah, into onto our hands and into our heads, into onto not into our heads. Don't squirt soap into your head in any way. But it didn't look like that. It is guessed that uh this time can't that this okay the soap was probably developed on accident and what they guess happened here is is some babylonian bloke we'll call him oh we'll call him chad because one of the best jokes in the bible so bible joke um not even a bible joke but like there's this character called nebuchadnezzar but like his name sucks to spell and so like if you ever want to remember how to spell nebuchadnezzar it's Nebuchadnezzar. Once you know that, you just call him old Nebby or Big Chad. So you got Big Chad, and he's just squatting over the fire, you know, cooking his meat. And as the fire burned down, the ash 
in the bottom would have settled. And for me, I always stir that ash up and it gets all up on my hot dog and it just, you know, and you're just like <laughs> trying to blow that ash off your hot dog. But it settles and then animal fats from cooked meat, cooked meat, drip onto the ash. When this was left to harden, this new fatty ash, <laughs> fat ash, get it? Because of the, the ash in the thing. But when this was left to harden, it formed a kind of waxy looking substance. Perhaps then at this time, it also could have been raining and they noticed a sudsy look as the water interacted with the fat and the ash. And they tried to then use it. Um, but, you know, we're going to see that like the primary use of this new soap was not for them. That's why I say they probably still smelled like a dog dookie out here. Who knows? But what we do know was that from this, uh, soap was born and they began to make it. It probably wasn't even for washing people. So they probably just, again, continued to smell like an ancient Mediterranean dumpster. But the primary use of this new soap, which they began adding salts and other oils to uh, in order to change the, the quality, it was primarily used for cleaning cooking and medical instruments or to try and disinfect surfaces and dishes. Got to get a big slurp. Oh, yeah. You really, you really hear the Abdulam Ablam Gata just cranking that water down your gullet. Um, but then, what ancient Babylon came up with, ancient Egypt also used. We learned that the ancient Egyptians used animal fats and oils mixed with salts and ash to form cleaning products. And we learned from none other than our favorite medical papyrus, the Ebers Medical Papyrus. If you want to know more on that, go check out our episode on, like, rub some poop on it. But, yeah, you've been warned. Um, that episode contains material uh, describing ways that people used to use poop. And one of them was to rub it onto and into your human body. You've been warned. So... Soap is a thing primarily made with animal fats and ash or salts. But it wasn't until the Romans that, according to the Romans, the Romans began to call soap, soap. Pliny the Elder, which, in case you didn't know, Pliny the Elder is an excellent Dungeons & Dragons name if it weren't already just a real person. Can you believe that Pliny the Elder is a real person? It's true. And Pliny wrote in his Historia Naturalis about Sapo, which he says was the first time the word was used. It was called Sapo, roughly translated, and big leap here. Uh, it means soap. Now, Sapo was a name of a mountain in Rome. And here's the deal, Pliny, if I may, Pliny. It wasn't probably real, like, and if it was, archaeology has, like, not been able to locate the, this mountain in, in the degree to which Pliny describes it, and also, 
uh, archaeology has just proven Pliny mega wrong. Because in, in old Pliny's account of the invention and naming of soap, the, it was on the slopes of Mount Sapo, where, so Mount Sapo was a place in, in his retelling where people would go to offer animal sacrifices. Now, now I grew up in a, in a religious system and in a culture that, like, didn't do animal sacrifices, but, like, it was talked about in the context of, like, scripture and the Bible and stuff. And so, like, I, I take for granted, like, that this was a facet. Um, but, like, essentially, if animal sacrifices, there used to be this belief that cultures would need to appease a god or gods, and to do so, you would offer sacrifice and either make, to either make things right or whatever. And so, in the story, Mount Sapo would have been the hill on which they did this. They would have gone up to the, to the summit of Mount Sapo, to offer these sacrifices. This, this act was a pretty common thing to go up on a mountain or up in a high place to do this. The sacrifices and the mixing of, you guessed it, ash and animal fats was drained off, settled into clay beds where nearby people would clean their clothes, and they noticed that things in this area got a little cleaner. So, here's the deal. This is Pliny's <laughs> version of this is full of hot air because first most romans took the meat and fat of the animals for themselves and burned the portions that were not usable so as a result this would have produced little to no tallow or animal fat byproduct and as a further result very little soap also as i noted mount sapo very likely not even real and third nail in this coffin for you there plenty Archaeology has shown that this, if Rome was trying to claim credit for this, that they took, Defo took credit for something that the Babylonians were using and had come up with. Also, Sapo, the, the place in Rome, is not even where the word soap actually comes from. It's true, however, the Romans did use soap, primarily for cleaning instruments and dishes much like their Egyptian and Babylonian predecessors. They may have even tried to use some soap on that ye olde communal wiping wand that Dave so graciously yoinked down his backside and then passed off to the next guy. You know, shared wiping sticks probably didn't lend to health and well-being, and that's all you need to know. The Romans also began using an extra compound in their soap, urine. We discussed that already, and again, that's, yeah, it's weird. The term actually has, the term soap, actually has Germanic or Celtic origins from, from the word saipo or saipo. The Celts would mix plant ash and animal fat together for the salves and, and to clean things with these salves. As time moved into the Middle and Dark Ages, there was this pendulum swing away from the cleanliness practices found in antiquity, and as such, things got both stinky and dirty. Soap would be used primarily for dishes and instruments as a way to clean and sometimes to be used in medicine for cleaning wounds. However, this coupled with the fact that at the time, 
uh, animal fats were costly, and other plant fats could not be found in some parts of the world. As such, soap making became somewhat of a trade, with there being monopoly on soaps in certain areas. At one point in Europe, there were so many trees harvested for the production of ash for the soaps that the following winter, they had chopped down and burned so many trees out of season that the area, the people in this area, like almost froze to death. But at least their hands and bowls were super clean. Like, so, you know, can you imagine being an archaeologist who has to give that report? What's the cause of death? Ah, they froze to death. But, my goodness, their bowls were clean, you know? Soap making has its start in Italy, France, and Spain. Uh, Note that these are where those natural, like, plant with fatty oil resources um, are more plentiful by way of lots of oil-producing plants again. For most, making your soap was one of the many household chores of the early thousands into the 16 and 1700s. The traditional practices of animal or plant fats mixed with ash and salt were used. You know, you'd wake up for the day and you, you on the list of chores would be to render ash and mix with, you know, rendered animal and plant fats to make soap for your household use. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know what I'm saying? Like if that clean stuff why why change it? And the answer is, sometimes what isn't broke is worth making better. And that's just what French chemist Nicolas Leblanc did. Nicolas Leblanc was the son of a director of an ironworks company. And he was educated um, under, med- he received medical education. And about 1780, he became a private surgeon. And five years prior to this, he was offered a prize for the process to convert salt into soda ash, extracted at the time by crude methods from wood or seaweed ash, soda ash was used again in making, in our purposes today, soap. And so if those soap industries and others that relied on this ash were to expand, a cheaper process was needed. So in LeBlanc's process, salt was treated with sulfuric acid. Here we are, chemistry lesson again this week. Um, they're going to start calling me Pigsty, the, the chemist dude. To obtain, so they mix salt with sulfuric acid to, cont- to, to rent, son of a gun, to obtain salt cake, which is sodium sulfate. This salt cake, which could be an excellent thing to call somebody after they've eaten any amount of Taco Bell salt cake. It's roasted with limestone or chalk and coal to produce black ash, which consisted primarily of sodium carbonate and calcium sulfide. The sodium carbonate was dissolved in water and then later crystallized. This process was simple, cheap, and direct. The the trifecta of money-making goodness. But the French Revolution had begun. And so LeBlanc completes his experiments in in the 1790s, and he never received the prize, you know. Uh, And and the National Assembly awarded him a 15-year patent, but confiscated the patent and the factory with barely any compensation. So 
Napoleon returned the factory in about 1800, but LeBlanc was never able to raise enough money to reopen it, and he uh, took his own life years later. But his development of soda ash, though he was never like properly awarded or recognized in his time for it, this development would go on to change the way that we make soap. What once relied on right location and resources and burning wood could now be made from salt and a simple chemical reaction. And as such, the cost to make soap decreased and the, the demand of soap increased. And if you're an economist, you know that that means one thing. You're fixing to make yourself some money. Upon its commercial success, Soap was viewed as a luxury item and heavily taxed. However, as folks began to take a new look at cleanliness in the 1800s, it began to be more widely viewed as a hygiene item. Like, can you imagine, like prior to that, being viewed as some fancy lad bourgeoisie boy because you use soap? Like, for goodness sakes. In these early days of, like, from now on, just... If you have, tell yourself you're fancy and just soap up, kids. Just lather it right up. But in these days of soap production, a household name came into being. A lad by the name of William Proctor, and who was a local candle maker, and his friend, or at least business partner, James Gamble, a soap maker, went into business together to form what was called Proctor and Gamble, or P&G. The taxes that I mentioned began to be levied on the sale of soap were so significant at the time that the people began to lock up their soap for fear of it being stolen. It's estimated taxes generated from soap during those days are an equivalent amount to the taxes rendered from liquor tax today. As Procter & Gamble, these local household names began to develop and into the 1850s, These advancements would bring soap to be one of America's leading industries. Factories in the mass production assembly line grew and developed and business was booming. And at the end, uh, so you have these Procter & Gamble lads. And and at the end of the 1800s, a few years after them, America con artist, gangster, and crime boss Jefferson Randolph Smith earned the nickname Soapy after... Cleaning up big time with his prize soap cell con. It was a simple crime, and it was designed to swindle vulnerable passers-by by wrapping bars of soaps in notes of varying denominations, covering them with plain paper, depending to mix them in with bars of devoid of any money, and then selling off these latter bars at an inflated price while maintaining the facade that some of the packages contain money. So... He essentially was trying to put like money inside the soap bars to convince people to buy them and scamming them all the same. In reality, it was the only member of Smith's notorious soap gang strategically planted in the crowd to masquerade as honest, ordinary folks who received the money for purpose of diminishing potential suspicion. It's a classic plant, you know. He's got his cronies, and they're the ones that are walking away with the soap filled with cash to get other people to spend astronomical amounts of money on, on these bars of soap in order to hopefully, like, 
get some sort of Willy Wonka golden $40 bill inside their soap bar. Like, come on. Frankly, yeah. Unfortunately, his reputation grew on his crimes, became more violent. Um, but like if, I, you know, if, if Soapy Randolph, Randolph Smith had just kept this soap scam, like that's on these people, you know. You don't, you don't do a game on the street. That's just, jeez. As the turn of the century happened into the 1900s, uh, World War I brought a shortage of access to animal and plant fats, primarily due to the effects of war on the land, as well as people's ability to obtain those. But as a result, soap makers and manufacturers had to begin to synthetically produce oils and other things they needed to make soap. We have solved the problem of ash. We no longer have to burn big tree to get ash, but now we're having a problem of all those fatty liquids, oils. Germany didn't have access to these things, and the synthesized products they produced at this time would go on to be used to make soap, except it technically wasn't soap, because what they produced was technically called detergent. And with the advent of detergents, as the world wars came to an end, many factories were converted to the further research, development, and production of these cleaning products. Like, they had to figure out how to make many more of them more biodegradable. As time went on, more and more research was done in development to produce fluid detergents. One of the companies that benefited greatly from these breakthroughs, and in addition of factory space, was the previously mentioned Procter & Gamble, who is still very much in business today. This company, in the 1950s, sponsored a daytime television drama, the genre of which became known as a soap opera. This new liquid detergent-based soap was strange-looking and could cost more to produce and they began to produce it. But another soap enthusiast was on the horizon to change soap as, as well. Robert Ridgely Taylor developed a thickened pumped hand soap called Creamed Soap on Tap. Now, my goodness, if I went to the Walmart or the Fred Meyer, old Freddy's, and I walked down the soap aisle, and instead of calling it just soap or whatever they called it, they called it creamed soap on tap. You know I'd buy one. Creamed soap on tap. This creamed soap on tap was a luxury item and hugely popular. And so this, this creamed soap on tap, this thickened soapy mixture is what has become used in most liquid soap and shower and hand soap friends. But here's the catch 47 of the whole thing. It's actually detergent. Soap is defined as a substance used with water for washing and cleaning made of a compound of natural oils or fats with sodium hydroxide or another strong alkali. The presence of animal or other naturally occurring oils seems to be, or maybe even synthetic oils, I'll give you that, but it seems to be a requirement for it to be called soap. Detergent is 
a water-soluble cleansing agent, which combines with the impurities and dirt to make them more soluble along with the water and differs from soap in that it does not form a scum with the salts and hard water deposits it interacts with. So here's the deal. We use detergent because it is water-soluble and reacts with the bad stuff when exposed to water. Whereas soap is reacting to the water and helps move the bad stuff away. So detergent actually interacts with the physical grime on your hand, whereas water reacts, or soap reacts with water to help loosen that stuff, but does not break it down. And so when they move it away, soap naturally then hardens and forms a scum that contains disinfect that contains those things that once contaminated the surface the soap gets covered with a layer of filth and that's that nonsense if you're using barred soap that's the nonsense that gets left inside your shower ledge it's it's not just soap it's all of the freaky dudes that have been hanging out in your armpits and your like leg crevices and now they have co- they have convalesced into a gelatinous pile of filth and they're they're becoming like flubber they're going to they're they're going to start moving and they're going to start becoming like more powerful if they build up soap is causing build up and so to the age old question if you drop a bar of soap in the bathtub technically Based on how soap works, the soap, with that layer of buildup on the outside, would make the bathtub, and as a result, the bar of soap, more dirty. And now you know, because soap reacts with water, detergent is dissolved in water. And so, most soap found in your bathroom, if it is liquid or creamed soap on tap it is most likely a derivative of detergent it's kind of like you are the laundry and the way you know is when you wash it like does it dissolve in water or does it just kind of like loose loosey-goosey with the water that's how you know soap has a weird history and as with most, most things that have to do with hygiene and cleaning, it has ties to religious practice. Except what's interesting is that the history of soap seems to be a byproduct or, if you will, a buildup left over from those religious practices. One used in cleaning and that would later produce a different buildup for us to to love or hate. Make sure you wash your hands, folks. Use some soap. This brings us to the end of another episode of Privy. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, we're, we're thankful that you're here. Just a reminder, we would love for uh, you to submit another review uh, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I know that uh, Spotify has the review option. Feel free to leave us a review there. Um, five-star options are preferred, and we, we thank you for that. Um, unfortunately, Spotify doesn't have a, a submission where you can submit a review. 
So if you want to write us a review, uh, go to Apple Podcasts, write the review, or rate us on Spotify and send us your review via an email. I uh, will read that here on the show. We would love to hear from you in that way. Uh, send us an email, suggestions, things you'd like to do, things you'd like to say. If you have a crazy bathroom story, feel free to reach out. We would love to have you on the show. Privycast at gmail.com. Connect with us on social media. We are at Privycast, wherever social media is found. Things are getting kind of wild and popping off over there. So uh, yeah, join us there. We'd love for you to do that. As always, we want to thank Kevin McLeod for the use of Barroom Ballet as our intro and outro music. You can find Kevin's music at incompetech.com, and his music is licensed under Creative Commons License Attribution 4.0. Thanks, Kevin. This has been another episode of Privy. Thank you all so much for joining us and listening. You mean a lot. We love y'all. And now, as always... Don't forget to flush. <laughs>